we know that that movement helps them focus. Therefore, it's essential for kids who struggle with staying on task that they move. And it can be simple movements. It doesn't have to be, oh, we've got to go out there and have them you know, run a mile. It's, that's not what we're saying. It could be also just letting them stand, right? Put a standing desk in your classroom. Allow them to walk around a little bit as they are learning. So the evidence has shown the increase in focus. And if we can get a child to focus more, well, they're more likely going to stay on task. If they stay on task, they're more likely going to learn. Welcome to the School Behaviour Secrets Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Corrigan. My co-host is Emma Shackleton, and we're obsessed with helping teachers, school leaders, parents, and of course, students when classroom behaviour gets in the way of success. We're going to share the tried and tested secrets to classroom management, behavioural special needs, whole school strategy, and more, all with the aim of helping your students reach their true potential. Plus, we'll be letting you eavesdrop on our conversations with thought leaders from a around the world so you'll get to hear the latest evidence-based strategies before anyone else this is the school behavior secrets podcast hi there my name's simon Currigan, and welcome to school behavior secrets this week i've mostly been asking myself important questions like if getting the right size of shoe is so important so they don't rub and hurt your feet you know you go into the shop and the assistant measures your foot and tells you you're a size eight and a half, but that's a wide eight and a half. So they have to order your size from the factory so that they're comfortable for you and they'll be in in two weeks. If that's so important, why, when I go downstairs in the same shop, are socks sold in single sizes that fit all feet between size five to 10? What is the deal with that? You know, the big questions. <laughs> important stuff. That's the voice of my co-host, Emma Shackleton. Hi, Emma. Hi, Simon. As is now tradition in School Behaviour Secrets, I'd like to start by asking you a question. Go on, then. What's your best strategy or tip for getting through a long, boring job that you don't really want to do? Something you've been like, you know, putting off, but the deadline's looming, and now you just have to get through it. Well, I actually work best with a bit of deadline pressure, don't you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. They sort of force your hand, don't they? They make you take action. Yeah, that's it. And, and I look at it like packing a suitcase for a holiday, for example. I think any job will take as long as you've got. So a good friend of mine starts packing her suitcase days or sometimes weeks before she goes on holiday. And in total, she'll spend a good number of hours packing that case. Whereas I'm a bit more of a chuck everything in the case the night before kind of girl. So if I've got one hour, it will take me one hour. Anyway, back to the question of getting through the boring job. I like the eat that frog approach that Brian Tracy talks about in his book of the same name. So basically, if you haven't heard about this before, eating the frog is a productivity strategy where you force yourself to do the most challenging task first when you've got the most energy. So rather than putting it off and faffing around with smaller, easier tasks, just get to the big hard task, get it done, get it out of the way, and then you can start your day with a great sense of achievement. And that really sets you up for the rest of the day. And then the other smaller tasks seem easier in comparison. So yeah, just eat that frog. Oh yeah, and also break the task down into smaller pieces, make it bite-sized. There's a joke in there, I think, about how do you eat an elephant? I don't know. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Oh, very poor. 
Anyway, I bet you're sorry you asked me that question now. I am. You gave an expansive answer. Anyway, why do you want to know? So in today's show, we'll be sharing my interview with Dr. Julian Reed, who is an expert on the impact of movement, not just on health, but also on children's behaviour and focus. And he reveals what the latest research has to say about this, which if you're working with a child or a class that have issues around concentration or self-regulation, will make very interesting listening indeed. Ah, okay. But before you give away what that research says, I'd like to ask one quick favour from our listeners. If you're finding this podcast interesting or helpful, please take 30 seconds to give us a rating and review in your podcast app. When we get more reviews, that tells the algorithm to direct more listeners in our direction, which helps the podcast to grow. And that means that we can help more teachers, more children and more parents. So now, here's Simon's interview with Julian Reed. Today, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Julian Reed to the show. Julian is a professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. His research focuses on examining the links between physical activity and cognitive function of young people. He is also the co-founder of Active Ed and its product, Walkabouts, which is a research-based online tool that makes it easy to create lessons that bring key concepts to life through physical activity. Julian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this interview because this is a, a topic that we haven't covered yet on School Behaviour Secrets, so I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot from it. So over the last few decades, on both sides of the Atlantic, we've seen a significant reduction in the levels of physical activity of most children, and adults for that matter, actually. Putting aside health issues like increasing levels of diabetes, what do you think or what have you seen has been the impact of that change on children's schooling and academic outcomes? Well, the sedentary behavior of children, and as you mentioned, of adults, is, has been a problem for some time. And if you take away the physical wellness, if you will, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, we know and we feel pretty confident in the research that kids who move more tend to behave better and have greater academic performance, greater cognition, which can then lead to greater academic achievement. Part of the problem in education over the last few decades is the focus on test scores and performance pedagogy, which has limited the amount of time for anything extra, if you will, whether it be physical activity and physical education or art and music. The focus has been on these core areas such as math and reading and literacy, which are obviously extraordinarily important. But we know that sound body, right, nurtures a sound mind and, and a sound mind actually helps to nurture the full body as well. But we've lost sight of that because of that focus on test scores and only academic performance, what really happened that started to change with, at least in the K-12 space, is, you know, the child obesity epidemic is a relatively new phenomenon if you look at health that has been measured over time. Childhood obesity really wasn't until the 90s. We didn't even start collecting obesity data in the United States until the 80s. So, we started seeing changes, uh, especially 
in first world countries like the U.S. in the late 90s, mid 90s. And there were a host of reasons for that, right? Inactivity, but also you can do tons of podcasts on just nutrition and, and the food that we eat. However, when you talk to school officials, they were aware of the changes in in children. But at the same time, they say we had limited time to teach. Anything we do extra is putting additional responsibilities on the teacher, and we have limited instruction time. So researchers in this space, even before I started looking into it, were saying to themselves, okay, and my wife's a classroom teacher. We're saying, okay, what's a way we can get more movement without losing instruction time? Now, integration is not novel. Integration has been happening for hundreds of years when we talk about education. But in this case, it was if kids like to move, and the first thing we do when we're born is we move, right? We kick our feet, move our arms. Why don't we use that as an an advantage to teach basic math and elementary literacy concepts for uh, younger children. doesn't mean you can't teach it with middle and high school. It's actually even been taught in college using movement. I use movement. But that helped administrators say, okay, so you're not losing instruction time. I already have to teach these things. And then you were able to show evidence that kids who move more are actually performing better. So it's actually helping you, the principal, the administrator, the teacher, the things you're responsible for. That really changed how people who were, might be apprehensive to bring movement in the classroom now realize, hey, this could be really helpful. Kids like to move. It helps them stay on task more, which is counterintuitive, right? I mean, people are like, well, you want movement and they're going to focus more. It actually helps to stimulate a part of that prefrontal cortex of our brain that helps us focus and helps us with memory and some of those cognitive benefits that we get through movement. It sounds ironic that in an attempt to improve test scores and those kind of measurable academic outcomes, movement's being pushed out of the curriculum when actually that was the key to unlocking better test scores in some respect. Is that the kind of... Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's been in human history in the last few decades, we've engineered physical activity out of our lives, right? We've made things more and more productive with no one would say, hey, we don't want productivity. But the sedentary lifestyle has become, I mean, look what, you know, I'm sitting here now, I do have a standing desk and a treadmill desk and, and what have you, but more and more disease is chronic, right? When you go back, you know, 100 years ago, right, early 1900s, people weren't dying from chronic disease, they were dying much more from infectious disease. But as we've had more uh, productivity, educational levels have increased, more white collar jobs, you become much more sedentary, and your body is designed to move. It's not designed to be sedentary. And we encourage our children to move when they're outside of school. But when they get in school, we ask them to you know, sit down and be quiet. That is starting to change. We, we are starting to see more coordinated school physical activity where kids are moving before school, after school, and they're getting some breaks, as you have alluded to. But those breaks could be more frequent. In many cases, if teachers recognize, hey, this movement is actually going to help the child, not just for the movement, but help them to retain the information. So what do I mean by that? So in our platform, which we're going to talk about, but we teach long and short vowel sounds. Well, we have the kids reach their hands up for a long vowel sound, 
and squat down low for a short vowel sound. Well, right away, a teacher looks at that and says, well, I get the kids who get the concept or who don't get the concept just based on their movement. But then if it's long vowel and you're reaching up, that further puts it into a context where short vowel, you're squatting down. So they're still learning beyond just moving. So how does that work at, at the brain level? How does that physical activity affect cognition and affect memory as well? What's going on? Yeah, so this is based on the executive function hypothesis. The executive functions are located in our prefrontal cortex. They're very important for planning, organizing, goal setting, working memory, abstract thinking, and I might have said problem solving as well. And so when you get more blood that goes to the brain, that blood brings a lot of different things with it beyond just oxygen. It also brings in growth factors. And those growth factors help to increase neurons, help to increase our synapses, which is essential for cognition. The more neurons we have, more communication, release of neurotransmitters, and therefore structural changes, true structural changes happen in the brain that leads to cognition. I mean, there's researchers out there who have found that more fit kids have a greater volume in certain areas uh, of the brain. And they have also found you know, more fit kids perform better on memory tasks and other things that are essential for learning. And physiologically, we think it's that blood, that growth factors, those changes in the prefrontal cortex, which leads to those benefits, not only on behavior, because it helps to stimulate focus, and it also helps you to increase your cognitive awareness. So this might be an oversimplification, but is exercise almost like adding food to a plant to help it grow and develop? Well, yeah, absolutely. There's actually, it's funny you say that. So Dr. Um, John Rady, who's from Harvard, and he's written a best-selling book back in 2008 called Spark. And he calls one of the growth factors, which is called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, he calls a miracle growth for the brain. Right. So to your point, it's a growth factor that is saying, okay, you have your brain and then we're going to fertilize it, if you will, for lack of, of a, a better term. And so the interesting thing about some of these growth factors is that they're regulated by exercise. We have some researchers out in California at UC Irvine who, who studied a lot of this early on with mice and found that the more active mice had changes in their hippocampus region of, of their brain, which is another important place for memory. So there is evidence there. Now, you, no one should ever say, well, it's 100% conclusive. But the evidence is there that the more you move, the more likely you are to have greater cognition. And we now know, too, there's evidence that it will push out dementia among the elderly. I mean, this all really started in the field of gerontology in the 1960s. And then it's kind of made its way down to different you know, age groups. And we've had such advancements in neuroscience. Most physicians or most in the health field 
recognize movement is much more than it is just for the heart. We do know that brain benefits a lot from that. And now we know mental health. I mean, so much mental health and mental illness has been shown to benefit from physical activity. I mean, even in the UK, I remember watching a show, maybe it was like 10 years ago, is a lot of mild depression has been treated with physical activity. That's the same in the States. One of the things you tell someone early on, I'm not talking about moderate or severe because those are different um, examples, but often mild is, hey, before we get you on medication, let's get you on a physical activity plan. And Duke University did studies you know, a long time ago to demonstrate that. So we get our kids moving more. That increases blood flow to the brain, which helps the brain develop and increase the number of neurons and the connections, and that helps our prefrontal cortex. What concrete benefits then do we see from that change in the classroom? How does that help our kids? What changes do we see in their learning? Well, right away to the point of the, if we break teaching down, I always talk to folks who are in the classroom who recognize if you break it down, what happens in the classroom, there's two things, you're teaching or you're managing. Now we can then scaffold both of those terms, right? And so it's much more than just say, well, there's teaching and there's managing. But if you're managing behavior, you're not teaching. So we do know the that prefrontal cortex, by stimulating it, also helps you with engagement and focus and helps to reduce hyperactivity. So that right away, even if we say there's no cognitive benefits, let's just let's just say, hey, focus on behavior. Well, if you're focusing more, right, that's going to lead to most likely staying on task. And I don't know how it is where you are, but in the U.S., one of the number one reasons teachers lead the field is behavior management. Absolutely. It's just wears on them so much. You know, these kids aren't listening to me. They're not behaving. It's, it's very hard. So you get that part. Well, if you think about thinking and problem solving, and other forms of cognition, like working memory, which has been found to improve with physical activity, those are pretty important for academic performance. So those cognitive behaviors or cognitive enhancements, as I say, they're pretty important when you talk about learning specific concepts. So that cognition helps to improve specific academic performance based on what those areas of the brain are responsible for. I'm really interested in how much this supports kids with ADHD, because ADHD can be considered an executive functioning disorder. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And and what you're discussing is developing neurons and connections in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that deals with executive functions, as we've already talked about. Sure, totally. So so what does the research say for kids with ADHD? Well, it says that the best thing you can do for them is get them moving. You know, it depends. If you go to the ADD Society and, and some of the others, they will often say really less than 5% need medication. But let's say it's around 5%. It might be higher. I haven't checked the stats in the last year or so. But we know that for the reasons you and I just discussed, that that movement helps them focus. Therefore, it's essential for kids who struggle with staying on task that they move, right? And this is where, and and it can be simple movements. It doesn't have to be, oh, we've got to go out there and have them, you know, run a mile. That's not what we're saying. It could be also just letting them stand, right? Put a standing desk in your classroom, allow them to walk around a little bit 
as they are learning, if the learning, you know, supports that. So the evidence has shown the increase in focus. And if we can get a child to focus more, well, they're more likely going to stay on task. If they stay on task, they're more likely going to learn. Now, I'm not saying that every kid who moves is suddenly going to become the, the most brilliant child in the classroom. We know we still have to have effective teaching, but we know this is an additional mediator that can help. And why wouldn't you use something also that we know young children like to do is they like to move. So it's kind of a win-win, improves you know, your quote-unquote physical wellness, but then it also then improves your social-emotional wellness and your mental wellness as well. So even if it's you know, five to 10 minutes, your body really responds well to those short bouts as well. It's a strategy that's completely free. And if it's got a measurable... <laughs> right, right, right. Remember, there aren't many of those, are there? You've developed a program called Walkabouts that helps educators implement physical activities into lessons in an easy, practical way. Can you tell us about your program, how it works, what it looks like in the classroom? Absolutely. So Walkabouts was really an extension of some of the research I've done and some of the books I've written and my, you know, talking to teachers who will say, hey... You know, I have a few lessons that I can integrate movement, but after that, I pretty much, you know, I'm tapped out. I don't know what else I can do. And so as I was training teachers in the late 1990s, early 2000s on how to teach with movement, really static, you know, paper to pencil lessons, I realized that beyond just training them, a lot of teachers were looking for like a turnkey approach that they could use that they didn't necessarily have to be creative in how to write these lessons. And so walkabouts was really an extension of that. At the same time I was doing this, I saw a lot of technology was changing and more and more technology was coming into the classroom. And I said, well, from a scalability standpoint, there's a real opportunity here because we've already have the pipes, if you will, built in and there's a board, you know, projector. What if we use that to our advantage? So walkabouts is totally web-based. And it's all, you know, online in the cloud. All a teacher needs to be able to do is check their email. And so if you can check your email, you can log in and get a credential. And we have a couple characters that take kids on these seven to 10 minute adventures in which they are moving as they learn specific content. So say you're a math teacher and you're teaching base 10. Right. Well, you go onto our platform, you log in and you have the dashboard there and you say, hey, I'm teaching first grade, I'm teaching math and then I'm teaching a subcategory and I pick a lesson and that lesson comes up and it takes the kids on uh, an adventure, whether it's in a park, whether it's in a city. And the unique thing is that the movements that the kids are doing tell the teacher if the kids get the concepts or not, but it also changes every time you play it. So that's part of a really unique part of our platform is although it plays like a video, it changes. So say I was doing numbers base 10, I'm not going to get the same numbers. Or of doing long and short vowel sounds, if I go back and play it again, I'm not going to get the same words and I'm not going to get the same order. Because if not, then, you know, the novelty wears off and students can memorize the answers. We do still have some paper to pencil, what we call walk sheets that allow teachers to use maybe as a pre-test or maybe as a way to extend learning after the walkabout. But it's really a platform where you use movement to teach the concepts you're already teaching. What age groups is it suitable for? 
Okay, so the primary age group is elementary age kids, and we've really focused on early childhood, pre-K to second and third grade, but we're building out some additional content for you know higher grades as well. And we do have some fourth and fifth grade content, but our main focus right now is you know kindergarten, pre-kindergarten, and then first and second grade. Um, but we are expanding those offerings. So if you're listening in the UK, that's uh, EYFS and Key Stage 1 with some early Key Stage 2. How do our listeners, if they're interested in this, how do they find out more about Walkabouts? Yeah, really, you just have to go to walkabouts.com and just put that into your browser, whether it's you know Google, Explorer, Firefox, and you'll come straight to our website. And you can try it out for free. I mean, we give a 30-day free trial, um, and this is for teachers, parents, administrators. And, you know, so you can use it right away without any cost. And if you want to continue, you know, we can figure out a way for that to happen, whether you're an individual or you're thinking more as a school. So my whole design of the platform was one, make it simple to use. So like if you can check your email, you can log in. And uh, make it truly dynamic so it's a new experience every time. Whether we like it or not, kids expect, you know, good graphics and especially the things they get on their iPhones and their iPads. So I think if you check it out, you'll see it's very engaging and it's all based on true standards. The way we have set it up and is that we know where you live. And so in the U.S., we know what state you're in. And then it actually pulls in those specific standards from where you live. And we have some options for those internationally as well. So that also helps because there are still some principals and administrators who are a little suspect of moving because they're like, well, you got to teach these standards. Well, by bringing in these additional standards, we're able to, a teacher's able to demonstrate to their principal hey, I am teaching what I'm supposed to be teaching. What I'm teaching also correlates with all these other things. So no instruction time is lost because that's ultimately the biggest barrier to getting more movement in school is instruction time. And and I get it, right? They're there to be learning. But why are we taking out something we know that's going to improve one of the performance indicators that a teacher and a principal and administrator is evaluated on? Really interesting topic. What sparked your interest? How did you get into Yeah, I was always a kid who got in trouble. So I was really, really hyperactive, constantly moving. And as I was going through graduate school, I realized, you know, I did some of my best thinking when I was moving. I never really liked to sit down. And so then when I started studying this in my master's, you know, I started doing some research. I came across a great book called uh, Why Learning is Not All in Your Head by Dr. Carla Hannaford. And she talks about a lot about the brain, of course, but she also talks about learning through space and having the perceptual nervous system updating the central nervous system. And then, you know, in the early 2000s, I was developing these paper lessons, and then we started to shift. And then Dr. Rady's book came out in 2008, which ended up being a best-selling book on how, and he's a psychiatrist, by the way, at Harvard. So it wasn't as much the cognitive component. It was a lot more of the mental aspects. So it just really fit how I live my life. I live my life by moving. And a lot of kids are the kinesthetic learner, and those often get overlooked, or they're labeled, hey, you have ADHD and your your behavior issue, which many kids might very well suffer from you know, ADHD, but there are kids who are just labeled that way because they need to move to learn. 
So that's really the impetus. You know, it started in my my youth, and then it became much more formalized as I became more educated on the topic. Finally, we ask this of all our guests, who is the key figure that's influenced you or what is the key book that you've read that's had the biggest impact on your approach to working with children? Yeah, it'd probably be that book I just mentioned on why learning is not all in your head um, by Dr. Hannaford. Just because when I first started reading it, it really helped me to better understand how learning is truly multisensory. And she talks about that. And when we move, we have proprioceptors that update our central nervous system on where we are in space. And that really resonated with me um, for a host of reasons. I'm very active in sport. And so when I first read that book, probably you know, 30 years ago, I suspect, I was thinking it even from a different lens of just how you move and how your body understands how you move. And then as you dig deeper, you realize, well, that is a form of learning. And it's just not learning in your traditional sense that we often talk about, but learning a motor skill is learning, right? I mean, you talk about the three domains of learning, right? You have your psychomotor, your affective domain, you know, which is your social, emotional, and then your cognitive. And those three things work together. Uh, so I'd probably say her book. It's been fascinating talk to you. I could talk about this stuff all day to you. But unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on the uh, podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Oh, I think that was a really interesting interview with lots of practical takeaways that we can start to use straight away. Our bodies just aren't designed to sit behind desks for hours at a time. And if movement can improve outcomes behaviorally and academically for kids, and it's got no cost, this is surely something we should definitely be looking at incorporating more of into our lessons. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll drop direct links to Julian's website in the show notes. And by the way, if you're working with children who find it difficult to regulate their emotions, we've got a free download that can help. It's called How to Help Children Manage Anger and Other Strong Emotions. Mm, that title sounds obscure, Emma. Tell me about what it's about. <laughs> it basically does what it says on the tin. The guide takes you through a proven approach to teaching regulation techniques to school aged children. So it even gives you resources to print out and use with your students. All you need to do to get your guide is visit beaconschoolsupport.co.uk and click on the free resources section near the top of the page. Remember, you're looking for how to help children manage anger and other strong emotions. Perfect. And we'll also put a direct link to that resource in the show notes as well. And if you've enjoyed today's episode and you haven't subscribed yet, then what are you waiting for? Open up your podcast app now while this show is still playing and hit the subscribe button. Then your app will automatically download each and every episode as it's released so you never miss a thing. And to celebrate subscribing, well, why not push a globule of coconut fat deep into your belly button. The coconut will make your tummy orifice smell like a tropical paradise. And as it melts, the oil will gently moisturize the remains of umbilical cord that must surely still be nestling inside your inner belly button, hanging around since your birth all those years ago. Just beautiful. I'm not sure I'd recommend that, but I definitely do recommend subscribing. I hope you all have a brilliant week and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Subscribe.